from Asia Society Switzerland, this is State of Asia. I'm your host, Rem Gontanis. For this first episode of 2024, we're diving straight into a hot-button issue, China and Taiwan. Tensions across the strait have been rising for quite some time now, with China increasing the pressure on the island with military exercises using everything from fighter jets to high-altitude balloons, with economic coercion and with increased diplomatic isolation of Taipei. At the same time, and that's the first, Taiwanese earlier this month, for the third time in a row, elected a president who wants Taiwan to continue to function as it has been doing for decades now, as a de facto independent state and vibrant democracy, something that's a thick thorn in Beijing's eye. On January 23rd, we at Asia Society Switzerland hosted an Oxford debate on how best to approach the Taiwan issue and prevent military conflict. Is strong military deterrence the only solution? Or does diplomatic engagement still have ways to go? Our Oxford debates are a great way to frame complicated issues into well-thought-out statements. We invite four experts to square off against each other, constrained by strict time limits that come with the format. Having only minutes to present their case, Oxford debates really force the participants to use their strongest arguments and clearest language. So on this episode of State of Asia, we're bringing you the key arguments on both sides of the motion, Diplomatic engagement, more than military deterrence, will prevent China's aggressive actions against Taiwan. First, you'll hear from Simona Grano, who is the Toy Senior Fellow on Taiwan at Asia Society's Center for China Analysis and an Associate Professor and Director of the Taiwan Studies Project at the University of Zurich. Simona opens the debate with a four-minute statement explaining why engagement is the best approach in the Taiwan issue. Let me be very clear about what we are arguing for today. We are not arguing that military deterrence or buildup in and around Taiwan are not important or even necessarily crucial, but that Taiwan can be better helped in ways that are more substantial but less provocative through diplomatic engagement, and that this can also better prevent China's aggression than military buildup. What we mean by diplomatic engagement is really how to involve Taiwan in ways that make its role more integrated in global circuits. So we all know that the increasing aggression by China and, of course, the erosion of Taiwan's democracy through misinformation campaigns, among other things, have been growing exponentially in the past eight years. And all the while, Taiwan has become more isolated in terms of diplomatic allies. But at the same time, it has gained in unofficial ties and recognition. And the Taiwan issue really has become the top foreign policy concern for countries like the U.S. and features also much more prominently in the European policymaking concerns and in their dealings with Beijing. The United States and its allies, we argue, can actually better defend Taiwan's democracy through more diplomatic engagement, primarily by doing three things. First of all, rather than offering rhetorical support for democracy that plays well at home, but really fails to meet the magnitude of the challenge to preserve Taiwan's autonomy, European officials and American officials should consider throwing quite weight behind Taiwan's concrete participation in international networks. Doing so would better showcase to the global audience how Taiwan's capacity can contribute to universal public goods. Second, it will be really transformations in economic relations, which could more substantively integrate Taiwan into global networks. In fact, Europe has become more aware of the island's importance in the global economy after reports estimated that a blockade by, the, uh, by China of the island could cost the world over two 
trillion US dollars in annual economic losses. Now, given Taiwan's supremacy in the semiconductor industry, the European Union, like the US, is really trying to establish closer cooperation to bolster its own chip manufacturing industry. Europe should speed up its efforts in the direction of a trade agreement with Taiwan, build resilience in, semi in global semiconductor manufacturing, respond to China economic coercion, and really diversify supply chains in crucial sectors by placing Taiwan at the center of these networks. These measures would not only help Taiwan to be better integrated in the international arena, but also have the added value of reducing economic dependence on China. And number three, finally, Europe and the US should opt for a more under-the-radar approach when it comes to Taiwan, which would be less self-serving, but more effective. Rather than sending parliamentarian delegations to Taiwan to make high-sounding declarations in support of its democracy, they really should set in motion a plan which would allow Taiwan to participate and engage in all these international organizations for which statehood is not a sine qua non precondition for membership. So the international community could start, for example, by reinstating Taiwan's right to participate under an observer status to the World Health Assembly, a right that Taiwan already enjoyed from 2008 to 2016, but has been revoked to, since China's pressure has been revoked. And Taiwan should be allowed to receive information and share its own experience from many agencies such as Interpol, ICAO, and the numerous environmental international meetings like the recent COP28, whose primary goals are not political, but really geared towards global health, security, or the well-being of the planet. Next up is the opening statement from James Lee, professor at the Institute of European and American Studies at Academia Sinica, the National Academy of Taiwan. In this debate, James argues for strong deterrence towards China. I'm focusing on the motion of engagement as applied to relations with the People's Republic of China. I would argue that basically we've tried this, and it doesn't work. Starting in 1971, the United States adopted an engagement strategy toward Beijing that over the course of subsequent decades worked for a period, but by the mid-2010s, it became clear that engagement with Beijing did not work. And apply specifically to the Taiwan issue, through all of the very difficult negotiations spanning decades, the core of the bargain between Washington and Beijing centered on the terms peaceful, unofficial, and status quo. The United States secured a a rhetorical reference to peaceful Beijing's a peaceful approach to the dispute with Taiwan. The United States assured Beijing that it would adopt unofficial relations with Taiwan, and the United States opposed either side of the Taiwan Strait, changing the status quo unilaterally. And that was the core of the bargain through many decades of negotiations. But the two sides never actually agreed on what these terms meant. The diplomatic engagement strategy only produced an agreement over terms and not over substance. And Beijing has been changing the meaning of these terms to suit its own interests. One very concrete example is that when Newt Gingrich, then Speaker of the House, visited Taiwan in 1997, there was no crisis over Taiwan. The United States never signed a piece of paper with Beijing saying the Speaker of the House would not visit Taiwan. But Beijing in uh, 2022, when Nancy Pelosi visited, Beijing interpreted unofficial to mean that uh, the Speaker of the House was approaching Beijing's so-called red line. So what I'm saying is that if you try engagement with Beijing, they will seem to agree with you on terms, but in reality, they won't actually agree on what those terms mean, and they will change the meaning of those terms depending on their own interests. And Beijing also 
also never agreed to accept Taiwan's right to decide its own future. So they're not giving up on the dispute over Taiwan. They're not giving up on their goal of eventual reunification or what they call reunification. We're not going to be able to talk our way out of this uh, dispute over the status of Taiwan. Rather, I think that there is a role for dialogue but it's limited to preventing accidents and miscommunication. But fundamentally, this um, dispute over the status of Taiwan is not really a misunderstanding. It's about two fundamentally conflicting sets of values and interests. And the fundamental values and interests are related to the uh, support for democracy and the rules-based international order, which Beijing does not accept. I don't think Beijing will ever accept. And Beijing is trying to remake the region in its own image. We need to negotiate from a position of strength. We've seen from our decades of engagement with Russia, that uh, trying to ch change Russia's expansionist tendencies didn't work. When it came down to uh, the initial crisis over Ukraine, all the phone calls, all the diplomacy, Macron's um, last minute attempt to negotiate a grand bargain with Moscow didn't work. When Putin decided to um, start the war, he didn't listen to anyone. And we shouldn't think that Beijing would act otherwise. This is not about diplomacy. It's not about strength. And we need to argue our position from a position of strength because power is the only language that Beijing and Moscow respect. Following these opening statements from both sides of the debate, each team gets four minutes to say what the other side gets wrong. The first rebuttal you hear right now comes from Amanda Shaw. Amanda is the senior analyst for China at the International Crisis Group. In this debate, she partnered with Simona, arguing for engagement over deterrence as the more effective approach towards China. The military equation is neither decisive for reducing China's current high levels of military activity around Taiwan, or in ultimately resolving the Taiwan question. First, for China, the question of whether or not to use military force to unify with Taiwan is fundamentally a political one, not a military one. This means that even if Beijing develops sufficient military capabilities to take Taiwan tomorrow, it will not necessarily do so. As well, even if Beijing does not have the right military capabilities and would have to enter into a costly war, it is likely to do so if politically pushed. We know this because this is evident in the passing of China's anti-secession law, which commits Beijing to using military force on Taiwan if its red lines are crossed. These red lines all have to do with Taiwan's political status, if it secedes from China, or if peaceful unification becomes impossible. Two, China's increasing military pressures on Taiwan in recent years are primarily in response to what it sees as changes in the political norms and how other countries and particularly the U.S., treat Taiwan. Improvements to the U.S. military posture in the Asia-Pacific or Taiwan's deterrent capabilities will not result in China rolling back these military pressures. Rather, what is required is clear signaling that countries do not seek to overturn the status quo. To give you some examples, we've seen in recent years a number of high-level political visits by U.S. Uh, members of Congress. Pelosi's visit in 2022, and the meeting between current presidents Heinwen and former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy in California. Both of these visits were politically symbolic, and they led to unprecedented military responses from China. During the Trump administration, senior official visits also resulted in China signaling its opposition through shows of military strength. In contrast, for decades, U.S. arms sales to Taiwan only elicited rote rhetorical responses. For China, shows of, of support to Taiwan strengthens Taiwan's de facto autonomy, which in Beijing's view threatens its objective of unification. It shifts, it, it is shifts in Taiwan's political legitimacy that prompts many of the increases in China's military pressure tactics. 
And the last point I'll make here is that peace has held in the last four decades because of a series of political understandings that we refer to as the status quo. Now, an important element of the status quo is that the three sides agreed to push a resolution on Taiwan status to a later date, and that in that interim, Taiwan status will remain a de facto sovereign state, and importantly, the possibility of peaceful unification remains on the table. A key reason why tensions have risen is because each of the three parties are beginning to question whether the others remain committed to these political understandings. Now, building up military deterrence is important for increasing the attractiveness of maintaining the status quo by making clear the cost of deviation to a more powerful and assertive Beijing. But equally as important is maintaining Beijing's confidence that peaceful unification does remain on the table and that neither Washington and Taipei seek to make Taiwan formally independent. If Beijing believes that unification can only be achieved through military force, we will be living in a much more dangerous world. To keep Beijing confident in peaceful options and to reassure China that refraining from military action will not result in its nightmare scenario of Taiwan's formal independence down the line requires regular and clear signaling from the U.S. and Taiwan that they intend to maintain the status quo. In other words, engagement and diplomacy with China is crucial to maintaining peace. With the rebuttal arguing the time for meaningful engagement is behind us, here's Yu Hua Chen, assistant professor in the Global Studies program at Akita International University in Japan. So I'm going to argue engagement without power will be uh, not effective enough. Simona mentioned we need Taiwan need to rely on United States or other, other partners. I would say military element is much more important because uh, we have to understand the logic of how China uses force, the bully the weak and fear the powerful. Anyone knows why China mobilized over a hundred ships to seize the scalposure of Philippines in 2012? It wasn't not because of the main uh, territory dispute. Beijing has a lot of territory dispute with almost every neighbors. And it wasn't because the Chinese doesn't like the Filipinos. Uh, the nations the Chinese doesn't like the most is Japanese. The main reason was Philippines has the weakest naval power in Asia. Right. So without building out its own military power, Taiwan might, might suffer the same fate as the Philippines. I agree with Amanda saying uh, how, uh, whether to invade Taiwan or not is a political decision. Yes, China is a party state. China's policy toward Taiwan only reflects the wishes of a very small fraction of people called the Party Bureau Standing Committee. That means uh, those members can easily make a decision to invade Taiwan or not. Uh, maybe today they prefer engagement, but maybe tomorrow they'll invade Taiwan. And same thing, those leaders come and go regularly. Maybe uh, the previous uh, leaders in Beijing, they prefer engagement, and maybe the next one, they favor in war. Right, that was the story uh, between the Deng Xiaoping and, and the Xi Jinping. So without building its own military power to protect itself, how can Taiwan ensure its own security feature? And uh, lastly, more important, building up strong military power can be seen as kind of a consensus of every Taiwanese. If you observe closely of Taiwan presidential election 2024, the three candidates, right, Ke Wenzhe, Hou Youyi, Lai Qingde, although they have a different position of how to deal with China, but they all argue the importance of military deterrence. They all agree military power is the foundation of building Taiwan's security. Finally, Simona also mentioned United States, and as a matter of fact, United States already changed its policy toward Taiwan from strategic ambiguity toward strategic clarity because uh, United States noticed the military balance between Taiwan and China already be upset by year, uh, decades along with Beijing military modernizations. 
So that was one important reason why Biden mentioned four times he will protect Taiwan. And that was why leaders in Tokyo now agree the security of Taiwan is security of Japan. Both the leaders in these two capitals notice it is important to have a very strong, clear, unwavering military support to Taiwan. Otherwise, Beijing will go something foolish toward Taiwan. Engagement is a is a past. You know, really relinquish. Uh, the end of the Cold War, everyone believe, uh, believe in neoliberalism, believe in mutual trade. Engagement will change your country's state, uh, state behavior, uh, like change the state's DNA. That was why uh, United States presidents from Bush to Clinton to Bush to Obama all try to engage China and see what happened. China only built up its military power to coerce its neighbors. So pure engagement doesn't work. So that was why the former Secretary of State uh, of the United States, Mark, Mike Pompeo, announced the United States should never return to its engagement with China. We need to build up peace based on the strength. This is an important principle that Romans remind us. That was Yu Hua Chen. The debaters followed these opening salvos with a 20-minute Q&A, where they dove deeper into the issue. I highly recommend that you check it out in the full video of the debate, which is available on the Asia Society website and YouTube channel. Links are in the show notes. Here on the podcast, we'll jump straight to the closing arguments, in which all four of our debaters made a final attempt to win as much support from the audience for their side of the debate. First, here's the closing statement of Simona Grano, who debates that engagement is more effective than deterrence. Pushing for more international space is really a promising opportunity to use international rules and regulations to give Taiwan concrete benefits. And in this regard, medium and small powers in the future are really unlikely to be decisive U.S. partners in the event of a conflict with China, but they can play critical non-military roles by internationalizing further the Taiwan issue and scrambling Beijing's calculations of the cost that it could incur if it would really escalate this tension into a full-blown war. This is because for all its formidable strength, the Chinese economy actually remains highly dependent on access to international financial markets, as well as on import of the key technologies, technical know-how, oil, gas, and food, and whatever. Chinese leaders know about these vulnerabilities and are, of course, trying to minimize them, but this cannot be solved immediately. So the United States and Europe should work with like-minded partners, encourage allies to work with Taiwan to further internationalize the Taiwan issue and the cross-strait issues. Chinese tactics are aimed at isolating Taiwan, coercing it, obfuscating and conflating China's narrative of the Taiwan sovereignty issue with its own for example, through conflation of the one China policy with the one China principle, which China claims is universally and internationally accepted, it is not. So informing the public in our countries and institutional capacity building will really help, in my opinion, in redressing the correct flow of information. The more united Washington and its global partners are in their resolve to preserve peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait, the greater the risk Beijing faces when considering military operations against Taiwan. And that is why diplomatic engagement among like-minded and allied powers will work much better to deter China from attacking Taiwan. Countering Simona and arguing for military deterrence as the best approach, here's the closing statement from James Lee. My overall perspective on the risks of engagement with China is that if we make a bargain with China today, tomorrow they're going to come back and they're going to ask for more. So one example from the history of U.S. China, China relations on the Taiwan issue is that as part of the one China policy, the United States never agreed to accept the position that Taiwan is part of China. For the United States, Taiwan's sovereignty remains undetermined. But we did agree to not challenge Beijing's claims. 
And Beijing has used that space to try to squeeze Taiwan further and further. We've seen this in the United Nations. They've been trying to change the text of UN Resolution 2758 to make it seem like it says something about Taiwan. It doesn't. They've been trying to change the text of the Cairo Declaration to make it seem like Cairo promised Taiwan to China. It didn't. It promised Taiwan to the Republic of China, which is a current legal legitimate authority over Taiwan. Beijing has been trying to change the, the terms of the bargain in a way that suits its own interests and reinforces its own claims. And the United States hasn't been challenging Beijing because that was also part of the original bargain, but that has been come at the expense of Taiwan's long-term security and enabled Beijing to engage in this lawfare and disinformation. In conclusion, I would like to say that we should focus our deterrence efforts on U.S. allies and partners and to reinforce the point that if Beijing ever decides to use force against Taiwan, then in that scenario of a Taiwan contingency, Beijing will be alone, isolated and weakened and cut off from the international community and Taiwan will not, and Taiwan will have the support of US allies and partners in the region and around the world. And that doesn't mean that every country is going to be asked to deploy military force in the Taiwan Strait. The United States is not asking Switzerland to deploy forces um, in and around Taiwan, but it does mean Switzerland may have a role to play imposing sanctions. The EU countries may have a role to play by imposing sanctions and maintaining their readiness in Europe to deter Russian aggression in the event of a Taiwan contingency. So this internationalization effort spans a, a wide range of issues and can build a long-term lasting coalition. And now making a final push to convince us engagement remains a more important tool. Here's Amanda Shaw from Taipei. Uh, as I said before, an ultimate resolution remains elusive around Taiwan. The preferred end states of the three parties are very far apart. In other words, more time is necessary for some sort of peaceful solution to emerge. The objective we have before us is to buy more time. And within that diplomatic engagement with China is a piece of this that is very important to manage tensions, to make sure things don't escalate out of control, to convince China that its nightmare scenario will not occur if it holds back and continues to hold back from going for a military invasion. And even when we look at deterrence, which remains important, the military piece may not be the most important element. Rather, the credibility of a coordinated international response, as James was just alluding to, in the event of invasion is more critical. That includes economic and political costs. Now, recently, Bloomberg conducted an analysis that showed that an invasion would result in $10 trillion of cost to the world. This is a massive, massive cost that will make any party pause before taking a, a military response to the Taiwan question. But this cost assumes that U.S. partners and allies will also impose sanctions alongside the U.S. on China. In other words, a broader coalition of international actors is absolutely required to maintain this current status quo. And this requires diplomatic engagement on the part of Taiwan and on the part of the U.S. with the larger international community to help them shift their mindset around what Taiwan is and its importance to the region and to the world. The Taiwan question is fundamentally a political one. As I said, it has always been treated as such by Beijing and how the world responds. This needs to be taken into consideration Non-military approaches and tactics, whether it's diplomacy or in forms of non-military deterrence, are going to be more decisive than the military ones in preventing a war over Taiwan. Closing this Oxford debate, arguing engagement without deterrence doesn't work. Here's Yu Huachen. Simona's arguments are very powerful, but it seems uh, she relies on the assumption that other countries or international organizations will always help Taiwan. But don't forget, this is an anarchy world. We have always relied on ourselves. And as I mentioned, if Taiwan doesn't show its own determination, how can it support or attract other partners? Amanda's arguments are also powerful, but it seems she relies on the assumption that don't anger Beijing. But don't forget, uh, over, the over the past eight years, has Taiwan angered Beijing? 
At the very beginning in two, uh, 20, uh, 2016, Tsai Ing-wen accepted the spirit of, 19, of 92 consensus and used the term mainland China to describe Beijing. And see what happened, Taiwan lost a lot of department ally and keep suffering those military pressure from China. Right, so uh, pure engagement never works. And don't, um, don't just try to uh, don't, uh, don't just try to police Beijing because Beijing keeps changing changing its red line. All right. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, tonight's debate is not only about what is the best way to address China, but also about the debate about uh, spe speculation versus evidence. Right. I've mentioned on evidence examples in, in our debate, and I hope everyone can see China uh, as it is, not just what it should be. China is a party state run by Chinese Communist Party, so that means we need to deal with China in a in a very in a in a way that different from how we deal with other democracies. So building a military a military power has been always the most important priority. Lastly, the history of human humankind military uh, military weapon development. Uh, from the stone tool to nuclear weapon shows us a very solemn reminder that if you want to survive in this anarchy world, yeah, please don't rely on others. Always protect yourself by yourself. And that's it. A very structured overview on what is a complicated issue that governments the world over will have to manage wisely to prevent escalation, engage or deter China to prevent further aggression towards Taiwan. Again, the full video, which includes the Q&A, is available on our website. That's where you'll also find more info on our four debaters. A link is in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to our Asia Society newsletter to be the first to know about upcoming Oxford debates and the many other events we organize throughout the year. Like on February 20th, when we'll see the return of our popular A Closer Look series, this time kicking off with A Closer Look at Indonesia after Yokowi. Visit asiasociety.org slash Switzerland to learn more about all of this. We'll be back soon with all new episodes of State of Asia, featuring engaging conversations with leading minds on issues playing out in Asia and affecting us all. And of course, all our previous episodes are still available. Be sure to subscribe in your podcast app to not miss out. My name is Rem Koutanis. Thanks very much for listening.